Well, good morning, Transit Church. How's everyone doing today? We're good? Awesome. I love how y'all are set up. There's like two people here, and then like the rest of the church to the right and the left. So I'm just going to have to pace back and forth, all right? Well, hey, if I haven't met you yet, this is your first time here. Welcome. My name is Nick. We're uh, excited that you're here with us this morning. As that video showed, we are continuing our sermon series, going through the book of Acts, entitled Acts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, for the remainder of the year, probably going to get halfway through the book of Acts, and this is our third Sunday so far in the book of Acts. So if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, we've been in Acts 1 all the way up to verse 11, so Acts 1, 1 through 11, and we've been doing a kind of a, a deep dive into this uh, unique part of redemptive history that's kind of often overlooked, and it's this period between Jesus's bodily resurrection and his ascension. And in that period that Luke, the author of Acts, describes, Jesus for 40 days in bodily form in his glorified state, he appeared to his disciples with many convincing proofs, and he also taught them about the kingdom of God. So, so essentially, he had a 40-day seminar about uh, his kingdom and how his kingdom would advance across the face of the earth with his disciples. And before he ascended to heaven, he gave, before, he gave the Great Commission, right? The Great Commission, go to the ends of the earth uh, and make disciples, teaching them everything that I commanded you to teach them, baptizing them in the name of Father, Son, Holy Ghost, so on and so forth. But before he said, obey that Great Commission, he gave them another mission. And that mission essentially was hurry up and wait. If you look at Acts 1-3, this is what Jesus told his disciples before his ascension. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. And Luke 24, 49. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So before Jesus' ascension, which we looked at uh, last week, was his coronation where he's seated now at the right hand of the Father, above, above every ruler, authority, power, dominion, so on and so forth. He told them essentially this, hurry up and wait. Wait and stay in the city. Don't leave the city. Don't lift a finger towards the Great Commission until what? Until you receive the promise of the Father, until you receive the clothing with power from on, on, on high, the Holy Spirit. And what we learned these past couple weeks uh, is this, is that we learned how paramount and important God the Holy Spirit is to advancing the kingdom of God. Saying you and I can advance the kingdom of God without the empowerment and the reliance and the dependence upon the Holy Spirit is like you and I saying that we can sail without the wind blowing. And so all that to say, quick recap, all it says is that today we're in Acts 1, Acts 1, 12 through 26. And what we're going to see today is how the disciples waited, okay? Because Jesus said, hurry up and wait. He says, you guys wait and you guys stay. And we're going to see what it looks like to wait on the Lord today. Who here likes to wait at the Transit Church? What do you guys think of when you hear the word wait? Shout it out. What do you guys think? Help me preach this morning. You guys gonna help me preach? Patience. What activities do you think of when you? Grocery store. Lines. Boring. Traffic, right? Like agonizing, boring stillness and dread, right? When I think of waiting, I think of a waiting room. I was in the doctor's office with uh, little Nick Jr. Uh, for a little checkup appointment, and I was in the big waiting room for about five minutes, and then for about 45 minutes, I was in the three-foot-by-three-foot three smaller waiting room for like 45 minutes, and I needed, I was literally crying out to the Lord for patience because I was about to walk off and leave without baby Nick getting his, his checkup. But that's what we usually think of when we hear waiting. We think of uh, passive waiting and boring dread for someone you really don't want to see, like a dentist or a doctor, right? 
And what we're going to see today in our text is this is not how the disciples waited for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Their waiting was more like the waiting that you and I had, maybe if you're here and you're married, on the morning of your wedding day, right? April 7th, 2012, uh, this is not how I waited for that 3 p.m., standing at the altar, seeing my bride-to-be, and pledging my covenant faithfulness to her forever. I didn't, um, you know, hang out all day in my sweats, eating crunchy Cheetos, playing uh, Call of Duty, right? That's not how I prepared for that day. And, you know, like 15 minutes after the wedding day, brush off, you know, the wedding is brush off the Cheeto dust and, like, run to the altar, you know, whatever. That's not what I did, right? That's not what you did. Uh, the anticipation for that arrival of that person you could not wait to, to see and, and pledge your covenant faithfulness to, that led to a whirlwind of activity, right? You had to get your, your, your tux all, you know, squared away. You had to get a fresh haircut, aka, you know, shave your head, make sure it's shiny and, and ready for the big day. Uh, you got to pray up, get all the details squared away, get the, the photographs. It was a whirlwind of activity. And this is what we see the early church doing before Acts 2 and the outpouring of the Holy, the Holy Spirit. We see this waiting for them was a whirlwind of activity done in delightful anticipation for God, the Holy Spirit. This is how they waited, not passive boredom, but action-packed anticipation. Their waiting was getting ready. Jesus said, you're going you're gonna to receive the Holy Spirit. You're going to get clothed with power on high. And they're saying, okay, we're going to get ready for that moment. So what we're going to do today is we're going to dive into this. We've got a lot of ground to cover in Acts 1, and so we're going to go, go through kind of verse by verse. So let's pray, and then we will dive in here. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for your faithfulness and your steadfast love to us today, Lord Jesus. We come to you with our great need, Lord God. Every second of every minute of every hour, we need you, Lord. And we thank you that you are rich in mercy. You are rich in peace. You are rich in love towards us, Lord God. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and you would have your way with your people and your word today, Lord Jesus. That you would magnify Jesus, that he would increase and I would decrease up here. But Holy Spirit, we just posture our hearts before you today and we say, have your way with our hearts. We don't want to leave here changed. We don't want to leave here with hardened hearts. We want to leave here with softened hearts. So stir fresh faith in our hearts today. Stir fresh hunger for you in our hearts today. And we just pray that you would be magnified, you would be glorified that you would have your way with your word and your people today. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, Acts 1, 12 through 14. Here we go. Let's dive on in. Then they, this is after the ascension of Jesus, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. And Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So let's stop right there. Uh, immediately what we see is the disciples make a beeline to Jerusalem, just like Jesus told them to do, and they gather in the upper room. And we're not uh, scholars aren't unanimous on the exact location of the upper room. Was this the same location of the Last Supper, uh, so on and so forth? We're not sure, but what we do know is that this upper room was sort of going to be the main hub of operations in Jerusalem for the early church. And what transpired in that upper room, what we know to be true, what we're going to see next week, would change the entire course of human history and, frankly, change your history and mine today, 2,000 years 
later. And uh, what I want to do is I want to hone in on verse 14. And we're going to hone in on three clauses and phrases in verse 14 that I just absolutely love. And the first phrase of verse 14 that I want to hone in on is all these. All these. Why is that phrase important? Because Luke goes into uh, great lengths to name who was gathered there in the upper room. And he names all the original 11 at this point, but uh, disciples and apostles who were there present in the upper room. And what we know, first off, who he names with the 11 is we know that these apostles who Jesus chose, they came from different political and socioeconomic backgrounds, right? We know that there were some that were in uh, the upper room who grew up uh, as blue-collar fishermen. We knew that there was uh, a tax collector in their midst who was upper-middle-class, wealthy, uh, a servant of Rome, kind of, uh, as far as Israelites were concerned, a despicable human, uh, human being. Uh, and then to add to kind of the uh, political diversity here, then uh, we see that one of the original 12 was this guy Simon the Zealot. And that wasn't someone who had zeal for the Lord. No, a zealot, that was actually an insurrectionist group in the first century. So a zealot, what they wanted to do was it was a, a group of kind of radicalized Israelites who aspired to violently overthrow Roman oppression. So you have a tax collector who's extorting uh, money from God's people to fill his pockets and fill Rome's pockets. And then you have Simon the Zealot, who is part of an insurrectionist group, who's, who's probably continually strategizing on how to violently overthrow Rome. And this is all, this was their backgrounds before they came to know Jesus. So at the very best, if Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector had Facebook, right? Their Facebook posts for each other, what were they able to post would be radically different. And they'd probably comment not the nicest things on what they would be posting. And at the very worst, Simon the Zealot probably would be strategizing on how to assassinate the tax collector, Matthew. That's kind of the political uh, diversity and socioeconomic diversity we see in the original 12. But Luke doesn't stop there uh, describing all of these, who was all there present in the upper room. In, uh, in our text, Luke says these 11 apostles were what? They were together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. And so what we see is that the 11 didn't use their apostolic office and title to kind of puff their chest out and keep the women away from the work of the ministry and said, hey, this is man's work. You guys know your place in the first century Greco-Roman world. No, no, no. They didn't keep women away from the work of the ministry. Why? Because Jesus Christ didn't. The first eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus were, were women. And in the first century, in the Greco-Roman world, their eyewitness testimony wasn't even valid in the court of law. And so what we're seeing in the upper room was radically progressive in the first century because women literally did not have, uh, uh, didn't have any rights, had as, right, had, had as many rights as dogs did in the first century. And yet, where do we see women? We see, we see them right at the epicenter of this move of God, side by side with the apostles, waiting for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That's where we see the women. The apostles, together with the women, together with Jesus' family, this beautiful diversity. And it was about to get a whole lot more diverse in Acts 2. And so all these, all of this diversity, and then look at the next phrase we're going to look at, with one accord. 
So all these, out of this diversity, they were unified with one accord, it says in verse 14. That phrase, one accord, in the Greek is, is homothumadon. Homothumadon. What that means, if you break it up literally in the Greek, homo means same, thumos means passion. Passion. So what the early church had after the ascension of Jesus and, be, and before even the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, they were united around what? They were, re, they were united around the same fire, the same passion, the same hunger, the same zeal for the Lord. Homothumadon, same passion. I love that. What Jesus, so what we see, what we learn there, is what Jesus Christ had done in their lives superseded everything they formerly held dear and cherished and valued. Everything Jesus had done in their lives surpassed all their former loves and passions. Uh, the Apostle Paul talks about this in Philippians 3, verses 8 through 9. He says this, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may, may gain Christ and be found in him. And so what we learn there is that when you come to know Christ and his redeeming love in your life, that Love, that knowledge of Jesus, that relationship with Jesus surpasses everything else. So everything else that you once held dear now pales in comparison. That's what Paul is saying here. And this is what we're seeing in the early church who had that same passion, right? Anyone here remember flip phones? Right? Anyone still have a flip phone? No. Anyone remember car phones? Anyone? Oh, yeah, I got, I got one hand over there. My sister in her Ford Bronco, like in high school, had a car phone. It was like, it was revolutionary. Oh, my gosh, what is this, this suitcase-looking thing? And, you know, it's awesome. So when, for me, growing up, I had, you know, obviously in college, had a flip phone. I loved it. I cherished it. It was super cool. I could text everyone using T9 texting, right? You used to have, a, have to text using numbers. I don't know if you remember that. It was, yeah, it was, I, I, you'd have to, like, roll your cell phone to the, anyways, just kidding. Um, and uh, when I got my first iPhone, the flat screen, what did I do? What, what happened when I got this, right? Did I, did I still value and cherish my flip phone like I once did? No, I found something of far greater value, something that was of far greater worth, so that what, what I once clen uh, uh, like clinged to and held dear was now trash, and I don't have my flip phone. I threw that away. And that's what happens when we come to truly know the love and the redemption and uh, the forgiveness and the peace and the reconciliation that Jesus brings us. He becomes our everything. He becomes our everything. And so much so, we see this in the lives of the early church. When Jesus Christ looks at the tax collector and tells him to leave his tax booth, the tax collector will gladly leave his love of money. And, and his tax booth to follow Jesus. When Jesus calls Simon the Zealot to leave his vitriolic political militancy to come and follow Jesus and advance his kingdom, the, the Zealot will gladly lay that aside because he's been found by Jesus and been called by Jesus. And same with fishermen who throughout the generations, father to son, father to son, fishermen, 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 they'll gladly leave their nets on the shore to go be fishers of men for King Jesus. This is what we see. All these encountered the all-satisfying King of Kings 
and therefore had all things in common. All these encountered the all-satisfying king of kings and therefore had all things in common. Their collective chief passion was knowing Jesus and making him known. And so then what does the next phrase tell us they were doing? It says in verse 14, all these with the same passion were devoting themselves to prayer. We're devoting themselves to prayer. Luke 24, 52 through 53 says this, talking about, again, out of the, the early church after the ascension. And they worshiped Jesus and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. That's what Jesus brings us, is fullness of joy. And they were continually out of the fullness of joy, overflowing the cups of their heart. They were continually in the temple blessing God. And so all these with one accord, with the same passion, were doing what? They were linking arms and collectively seeking that which they were most passionate about, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And now let me just say this. In uh, January, we went through a sermon series called Abide, and we really honed in on the spiritual disciplines. But what we need to, uh, there needs to be a key distinction here, because when we look at these verses, it's easy for us to look at the early church and be like, oh, um, man, they're so pious. These were like the religious varsity squad, and they were so pious, and they, they loved the spiritual discipline of prayer, and they loved the spiritual discipline of praise and blessing the Lord. We should just emulate their spiritual disciplines. Let, let me just say this. They didn't have a love for prayer. They didn't have a love for the spiritual discipline. Sorry, let me, they didn't have a love for the spiritual discipline of prayer. They didn't have a love for the spiritual discipline of praise. They had a passionate love of Jesus that was so fiery, that so much zeal for the Lord, that they... They couldn't help but continue to praise him and continue to connect with him relationally through prayer. And often in our lives, and if we honed in on this for five weeks, and I'm still going to hone in on it, is they didn't hone in on, oh, we need to pray. Oh, we need to pray. No, we need to pursue the Lord, the living God, the one who's ascended, the one who's going to pour out his Holy Spirit. That's what we were created to do was to know God and more of the depths of his love. So as far as I'm concerned, I'm going to pursue him with everything I got. Because Jesus said the greatest commandment in Matthew 22 is love the Lord your God with what? All your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. This is why you and I exist, is to be passionately loved by God and in return to love God. To respond to his love with that same zeal. So that was their passion. This was not a duty for the early church. It was a delight. This was not piety. This was passion. The same passion that they had. And I picture, this is not from... This is just how I picture it. This isn't something I read in a commentary, so don't, like, don't make notes on this. But I picture them in the temple. Them in the temple, it's like 2 a.m., and they're gathering. Their hands are raised, man. They're just crying out, hungering that the Lord would use them mightily to fulfill the Great Commission, hungering for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, wait, well, we're going to pursue, right? This is how we wait. We're getting ready. And I picture, like, I don't know, the priest or the janitorial service at the temple, like, flickering the lights at, like, 2 a.m., like, hey, guys, you're keeping me late. Like, this needs to stop. I imagine you couldn't get them to, to leave the temple or to leave the upper room because of how much passion they had for Jesus, what he's done for them, right? One of the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection was, was Mary, who had seven demons cast out of her by Jesus. She was radically set free, left her life of sin. Jesus, in an instant, in an instant, set her free from bondage and chains 
and gave her new life. You don't think she wants to continually lift her hands and worship to the one who set her free? That's what they're doing. Jesus radically changed their life. They saw his resurrection body. They knew what was going to happen for them, and they were, and they were going to pursue him. So much love, so much hunger, so much passion. Let me just say this. Hungering for God, or hungering for more of God, kind of like we've been talking about these past couple weeks, church, it's not legalism. It's not legalism. It's not legalism to pursue God and to seek after him and hunger for him. It's actually the greatest invitation God could ever extend to you. That's what hungering for more of God is. That's why God perpetually, I had so many verses, but we had a lot of ground to cover, so I couldn't share them. I took them out. But there are so many verses where God invites us to draw near, invites us to seek after him. Why? Because he alone possesses what your heart is desperately searching for. And in the church today, there's a common refrain, and I get it, it, stem, it's, it stems out of something good, right? And let me just say from the outset so you don't mishear me, our positional righteousness in Jesus Christ can never change. Our position in Christ can never change. We get to rest in that beautiful reality, our union with Christ. Nothing will ever dare separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. However, our position in Christ can never change, but our passion for him can ebb and flow, right? Our communion, our fellowship with him, our experience of him, our zeal for him can ebb and flow. That's why we have perpetual refrains to draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And often in the church you hear people say, don't hunger for God, that's legalism, just rest in his finished work. Now listen, if you hear another Christian tell you not to hunger for the Lord, and maybe you need to hear that today, right? Maybe you're wrestling with legalism and you're trying to hunger with the Lord to get more positional righteousness. No, it's out of what Jesus has done that should lead us to want to have more relational intimacy with him. But listen, when someone tells you not to hunger for the Lord, the, the unintended con consequence of that is they're backhandedly inviting you to go hunger for every other idol that exists. Right? If I were to stand before you today, and I'm telling you, there's blogs, there's podcasts, there's a lot of info, that's why I'm saying this, there's a lot of stuff out there that is telling people, Christians, to stop hungering for the, the Lord and just rest. And then I look at the state of uh, the church at large today, and I see Christians crippled with addiction. Christians crippled. They're, they're addicted to illicit things, or Netflix, or Pinterest, or, you know, uh, social media, or, or political blogs, and, and they're consuming and hungering for, hungering for literally everything and anything but the Lord Jesus himself. And they're being obedient to what other Christians are just simply telling them. And in stark contrast to that, what we see in Scripture is a continual invite of the Lord himself in Scripture to draw near to him, to draw near to him, right? Jesus says, I'm gentle and lowly. If you're heavy laden and burdened, come to me. And then what will you get from Jesus? Netflix won't give you rest for your weary heart, right? Alcohol is not going to give you rest. The only one who possesses rest for heavy laden hearts is Jesus himself. Jesus, as we saw this in John 15, he says, I, I, I am after your joy. I am praying this, that your joy might be full. So Jesus has a monopoly on rest and joy and love and peace, and his table never ends. So I grew up uh, uh, on my dad's side, Russian-Ukrainian background. And so anyone, Eastern European here in this back? Just me. All right. There you go. I got one. Um, so my grandmother, Ava, for Thanksgiving, I'm telling you, her dining room table is like the size of this stage. 
It was ridiculous. Like whenever Thanksgiving would end, she would start cooking for the next Thanksgiving, okay? And it was like this blend of like American traditional whatever like Thanksgiving meals, but then also this beautiful blend of like Russian-Ukrainian treats and then awesome desserts and all this stuff. But listen, the invite to, like, the invite of when I knew that dinner was coming on Thanksgiving, I would fast. Almost every Thanksgiving meal, right? I would fast. Why? Because it was my duty, right? Oh, I got to fast. It's Thanksgiving again. My grandmother's going to, you know, do, just guilt me for whatever. Um, no, I knew that if I didn't come hungry, if I didn't come hungry to that Thanksgiving dinner and I satiated myself on all these false comforts, right? I would not experience the fullness of what my grandmother prepared for me because the extent of my experience of what was laid out on the table was how hungry and desperate I was to taste and see the goodness of what was prepared before me. And that's the gospel. This is what Jesus Christ prepared for us with his crushed body and his spilled blood is a never-ending table of his mercy and his love and his grace that's new every morning. And the way we appropriate that the way we cling to that is our hunger and our hope and our need for more of him, exactly like Joe Workman was saying. So hungry for more of God is the most beautiful invitation God could ever shout to us in his word and woo us and whisper us and saying, I have something far greater to offer you, far greater to offer you. That's what Jesus does. And what we see, returning to our text, is what we see the early church do is this, is when brothers and sisters in Christ collectively dwell in unity together, not, not dividing, not divided like all the church was in 2020, but collectively united together, dwelling in unity together, and are united in their passionate pursuit of knowing Jesus and making him known to the nation, that is when the Lord commands a blessing upon that body of believers. When you and I, church, when you and I, when Jesus becomes our one passion, and that passion supersedes everything that we want to let divide us in 2020, right? I don't, your opinion on this, your opinion on this, your opinion on this. My opinion is, is like what we're pursuing is Jesus Christ, loving him and making him known, preaching his gospel, advancing his kingdom, right? In, 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 in word and in deed in our community and globally, right? But when we're unified under the banner of Jesus, linking arms and collectively pursuing him and crying out for more of him to be used mightily by him to advance his kingdom, that is where the Lord commands his blessing. With Psalm, Psalm 133, how precious it is in God's eyes when his people dwell in precious unity together. And then that Psalm ends and says, and that's where the Lord commands his blessing. That's where the Lord commands his blessing. And so our invitation to you, this Acts sermon series, is this, is church, for 2021, man, let's throw off all that that would easily divide us and link arms in our prayerful hunger to know Jesus and make him known because the simple truth and the common refrain of this, this sermon series is this, is there is so much more that God has in store for us. His table never ends right? There's so much more he has in store for us. There's so much more he wants to do in your life, and there's so much more he wants to do through your life. J.D. Greer, in his book, Jesus Continued, he says this. He says, don't, uh, don't ever underestimate. Don't let, uh, I forget how I'm going to mock this, but he says, he says this. He, he essentially asks this question in his book. He goes, how much impact do you want to have for the kingdom of God? And then he says this. He says, don't mock those who underestimate their impact for the kingdom of God. Mock those who overestimate it, right? And this is the beautiful invitation that we see in the book of Acts, is we have this beautiful invitation with the power of the Holy Spirit 
to know God, to know more of the depths of his love, and go out and make him known. So with that said, our passage continues. we got still a lot more ground to cover, but what we see is that, yes, their waiting was this whirlwind of passionate pursuit of Jesus and praise and prayer, but it was also kingdom planning, right? There's also, there's also some planning here, and there is no ministry without administration, and so this is what we see take place next, verses 15 through 22. And in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Jesus, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. Now this man acquired a field with his re reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who accompanied us during all the time that the Lord went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us as a witness to his resurrection. So real quick, this is what's happening here, is Peter is addressing the elephant in the room, uh, the topic that over the last four weeks or so, nobody probably wanted to talk about or knew even what to do about. And that topic of discussion was the plight of their former friend, their fellow apostle, Judas Iscariot, right? And so what Peter does here is he briefly recaps Judas's betrayal of Jesus and his suicide, and uh, he kind of recaps that in graphic detail. I imagine, like, parents in the upper room, kids are present, like, earmuffs, Peter's preaching, all right, like, that's kind of graphic there, Peter, thanks for the details, um, but what we learn here, what Peter's doing here, is this is not a eulogy for Judas, what, why Peter is stepping into the fray is the early church needs to figure out what to do about this now vacant apostolic office that Judas once filled, right, like, Jesus chose 12 apostles representing the 12 tribal leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel to restore the new Israel, to, to usher in the kingdom of God. Those were his 12 generals that he chose to lay the foundation for the church. And they, they were, there were 11, and they needed that 12th office restored. And Peter, what Peter does is um, he's a man under the authority of the word of God. The early church community opened up the Old Testament scriptures, Peter did, quoting Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, and he's saying Scripture has to be fulfilled. Scripture says this was going to happen and that this office needs to be fulfilled. And I love the way he describes uh, the Holy Scripture. He says uh, the Holy Spirit inspired through David. And we see the Holy Spirit inspiration of the Old Testament Scriptures there uh, confirmed in the New Testament in the book of Acts. And so then Peter says this apostolic vacancy has to be fulfilled. The Old Testament says so. And then that job description uh, for uh, that apostolic office was, was someone, it couldn't just be anyone off the street to be an apostle, one of the capital A original 12 apostles. What Peter is saying there is this person has, had to have been from start to finish uh, accompanying Jesus in his earthly ministry. And this person had to have been an eyewitness to the bodily resurrection of Jesus. This is how important the resurrection was and the apostolic eyewitness to the spread of the gospel, to the spread of the gospel. So our entire faith hinges on this apostolic eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus, and this apostolic tradition through God's word has been passed down to us, and we now bear witness to what the original 12 
bear witness to that Jesus is alive, that he is risen. So, so filling this office is incredibly important, and this is how they go about doing that, verses 23 through 26. These are the last verses in our text today. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So out of the 120 that were present, only two dudes met the standard. This guy, Joseph and Matthias. Now, if I was there, and I was one of the 11 and making this decision, I would look at the amount of names this guy Joseph had, and I would look at Matthias, and I would look at Joseph and say, hey man, easy decision. Your name is apparently Joseph, Barsabbas, and Justice. I don't know what to call you on Monday, so we call you Joseph. On Tuesday, so we call you something else. This is too much, bro. I'm going with Matthias. 11, what do you guys think? All right, we're going with Matthias. Thankfully, I wasn't there uh, to make that decision. But what we see here is the humility, the dependence of the apostles. One, they humbled themselves under the authority of God's word. Peter opened the scriptures, right? He quoted the scriptures. And he said, God, the Holy Spirit inspired them. So under God's word, we will be submissive. And, and the Lord himself is saying, we're going to fill this office. And then there's humility in this, is that they could have, again, with their apostolic identity and their apostolic badges or name tags or whatever, they could have said, great, we have God's word. Now we're just going to use the brain God gave us and make this decision. And yet they didn't do that. When we, so when they hit that kind of gray area that theologians call between God's revealed will and his word, his crystal clear, sufficient, revealed will, that this office needs to be fulfilled, and then they're pressing into God's concealed will. Right? The concealed will of the Lord. God's revealed will, we see God's will is known to us. God's word is sufficient for all of life and practice, right? And then there's these moments in our life where we can ask God for, for specificity on what to do next. Well, we know God's word, your word is saying, the apostles are saying, your word says this office needs to be filled, but who, needs, but who specifically do you want to take this office? And then what they pray is this. We don't know. And we're not going to presume that we do know. But you, Lord, you know the hearts of men. And so we're going to humble ourselves, and we're going to let you make the decision. And now what's interesting, as they pray that prayer, and then somebody gets out like a pack of dice, and they play a game of Yahtzee and figure out who, who the, uh, the next apostle is. And what they're doing here is actually was not uh, out of the norm at all. The, the historical context, uh, even what we see throughout the old covenant age is that casting lots was a very common practice in that day and age in Israel. God actually instructed the Israelites to divide the promised land through the casting of lots. And Proverbs 16.33 says this, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. But what's interesting as we're going uh, to see here in Acts 2 and the rest of our Acts series is that once the Holy Spirit is poured out, once the Holy Spirit is poured out, we never see this practice again. Why? Why? This is why. Because as we'll see throughout the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit, the great counselor, the great comforter, 
continually speaks, right? 59 times in the book of Acts, 59 times, 28 chapters in the book of Acts, 59 times the Holy Spirit shows up, and almost 40 of those times the Holy Spirit is speaking directly to his people. Dreams, visions, uh, uh, words of knowledge, inner voices, so on and so forth. Go chase down that chariot. So We're going to see this. When the Holy Spirit comes, he leads, he speaks, he guides his disciples into where they should go, what they should do, what they should say. Put the dice away, fellas. The Holy Spirit is about to be poured out, right? That's what we see. We never see this practice again once the Holy Spirit is poured out on all flesh. And so long story short, Matthias here wins the coin toss, right? That's what we see. And the 12th man is restored. The 12th apostolic office is restored. And so what we've been seeing so far is this is how the early church is getting ready. Their waiting is not like, like we would wait for the dentist in the waiting room. No, their waiting is anticipation. They're getting their hearts ready. God, the Holy Spirit, when he would be poured out in their midst, he was not going to be an unwelcome or unwedded, un, unwanted visitor. It wasn't going to be a surprise to them that the Holy Spirit was going to get poured out because they were praying, they were hungering, they were asking, and in addition to that, they are getting their hearts ready, but they were also getting their ministry ready. There was planning taking place. Everything, the, uh, this all-consuming passion of knowing Jesus and making him known was leading them to prepare their hearts and this apostolic office, and what we see, we're going to see next week in Acts 2, we're talking about Pentecost, and you think I'm getting fired up right now, man, just wait till next week. Um, we see that the Holy Spirit is ready as well. Holy Spirit is ready as well. And so I'll conclude with this. What we've seen so far in Acts chapter 1 is over the past, um, you know, three weeks that we've been in Acts chapter 1, we've seen all that the enemy meant for evil, our sovereign Lord using for good and restoring. Because what we learn in Luke and, Ju and, and John is that there came a moment through Judas's sin, maybe greed, envy, he opened the door to the enemy, and we see that Satan entered Judas. There was demonic influence, Judas was responsible, and yet there was demonic compulsion that he allowed in through unrepentant sin, that led to this, that via Judas, the enemy, the devil, sought to not only take out Jesus, right, to, to betray Jesus and, and kill him through the betrayal of Judas, but also to take out one of Jesus' 12 generals that Jesus chose to advance his kingdom across the face of the earth. And where we're at in our text, less than two months prior to where we're at in our text, both Jesus and Judas were dead. They were taken out. They were buried. And for a brief moment, all of hell was rejoicing and popping champagne for what they accomplished, thinking they could thwart the God's, God's plan, thinking that their evil could triumph over God's plan of redemption through his son. Now listen, what we've seen so far in the book of Acts is this. If Jesus said he was going to die, but in three days rise to new life, guess what Jesus is going to do? He's going to rise to new life, right? Amen? If Jesus chose 12 apostles and the enemy took out one, guess how many apostles there's going to be? There's going to be 12, okay? Are you tracking with me? 
If Jesus said, my kingdom will advance to the ends of the earth and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, what do you think is going to happen? His kingdom is going to advance across the the ends of the earth and the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Everything that we have seen, the enemy at the end of the gospels tried to steal and kill and destroy. He was just a pawn in God's redemptive historical plan to bring countless souls from hell into heaven, right? God triumphed over the enemy's works. It was beautiful. What we see, this is what we see God do, restoring all that the enemy tried to take. Jesus is resurrected in bodily form, showing us that God has a heart for the Imago Dei, for your physical body. He's going to fully redeem. He's not going to let the enemy through disease and death destroy you. No, your body's getting fully restored. And then we see the apostolic office. I believe Jesus' heart was saying, you don't take out one of the 12 on my watch. That's getting restored. That's getting restored. It's going to return a thousandfold on the enemy's head, on the enemy's head. I love that. And so what we're going to see in the rest of Acts, what we're going to see is this, is the beginning of the restoration of all the devastation that the enemy sought to bring across the face of the earth. This is what Jesus Christ came to do, was to restore, to reconcile, to redeem. Where sin sought to separate us from God through Jesus' death on the cross, Our sins are washed away. They're cleansed. They're forgiven. So sin no longer has any power over you. If you've asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins, that's been nailed to the cross, your record of debt. Now Jesus gives peace, peace between you and God. You're reconciled to the Father. The penalty of sin, death, was conquered through Jesus' death and resurrection on your behalf, right? And so then we see when God's kingdom come in the Gospels, in the book of Acts, when the lame man begins to walk, disease and sickness, that's a, that's a result of the curse of sin. And the kingdom of God, Jesus came to restore that. When you see people afflicted with demonic oppression, and we see in Luke, and we see the early church do this in Acts, when they're breaking people free from demonic oppression, that's Jesus reclaiming what is rightfully his. And so what we see in the book of Acts is the beginning of God's plan, his rescue mission for all of humanity to the ends of the earth. And he invites the church, the spirit-filled church, to link arms with him in this beautiful plan to say, hey, go reclaim, go restore, go renew everything that the enemy sought to take from us, right? It's a beautiful, beautiful calling that we have. And so let's, uh, let's close in prayer, and I'm going to give you guys a moment just to posture your hearts to King Jesus, and, and just, I, w- I would invite you to do this, is look to the cross, look to the resurrection, look what he's accomplished for you. And if you're wrestling with evil, maybe it's a physical ailment in your family or uh, something you can't shake today, uh, the, word I, the word that was on my heart this morning was just Romans 8.28, that God works out all things for good for those that love him and have been called according to his purpose. What we know is, is God's sovereignty, only our sovereign God can turn that which the enemy meant for evil in our lives for his good. So let's posture our hearts, invite the Holy Spirit to come and search us today, and let's make sure that we align our hearts in full surrender to what he wants to do in and through us uh, today, both personally and corporately as a church. So I'll go quiet here for a little bit as you guys do that.
Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for Paul's prayers in, in Ephesians, Lord Jesus. And I thank you for Ephesians 1, where he says, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I don't cease thanks. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Lord, give us eyes to see you today, Jesus, to see where you're enthroned, Lord God. Wisdom and revelation, the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Give us eyes to see this today, Holy Spirit. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he works, in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all. And also, Father, we just come before you so grateful for the gift of your Son, Lord God. Thank you that you did not leave us in our sin. You did not leave us um, in the clutches of the enemy. But Jesus, you came for us on that cross. You came running for us, God. You came to reclaim and to restore everything that the enemy sought to steal from you. So thank you, Lord Jesus, that we are yours. Those who are in Christ Jesus today, that we are yours. We are your treasured possession. We are the beloved of God. We have a king seated at the right hand of the Father, and we are citizens of a glorious kingdom where your mercies are new every morning for us. So thank you for that beautiful gospel reality, God. And where there's despair today, Lord Jesus, would you give us hope? Where there's anxiety, would you give us peace? Where there's fear, would you give us faith, Lord Jesus? And when there's apathy, would you give us zeal for you and zeal for the lost, Lord God? So Holy Spirit, we just posture our hearts with open hands to you. We say, have your way. Have your way with our hearts. Have your way with our lives. We surrender all to you. And we ask that you would be poured out afresh upon us to thrust us into the world locally and globally to be your witnesses, God, because your truth, your goodness, your love, your gospel is too good for us to keep to ourselves. So thank you, Lord God. Thank you for the depths of your love for us in Christ Jesus. And I ask Holy Spirit, that the transit church today would leave here knowing how dearly loved they are in you. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.